Well, good morning, New City Church. Um, my name is Brandon. I'm uh, happy to be with you this morning. Uh, several years ago, when Alicia and I were coming to faith, uh, we we found our way to a church, uh, a small church. It had been uh, an integral part of our uh, coming to uh, follow Jesus. And uh, at some point in our life, we moved near that church and we became members of that church. We began uh, to get involved uh, with serving there and uh, we fell in love with the people. And God really used that time in our lives to help us grow and mature in our faith. But as time went on, you know, we, we began to see some of the, of the negative sides of that, of that uh, church. And uh, one of those was uh, they allowed me to um, kind of overcommit myself. Uh, I was, uh, every Sunday, I was the first one there and the last one to leave. And, uh, and that was a problem eventually. Um, over time, also, we began to realize that we had some doctrinal differences. They were of a Wesleyan tradition, and I uh, didn't know what that meant back then, but um, as time went on, God began to show me things in Scripture, and I began to experience things in my life that didn't quite line up with their teaching. And kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, was just kind of a political thing that happened. Uh, the pastor that we loved was put on a sabbatical against his will, and we didn't like how that was handled, and we uh, spoke up about it. Um, but ultimately, we decided to leave that church. Uh, we actually moved to Georgia and became Presbyterians, but that's a, a whole different uh, story. You know, we, we uh, loved that church, and we loved the people there, and, and God really used it in such a positive way. Uh, and yet... Uh, when we left, I have to admit that I had allowed some resentment to develop in, in my heart. Uh, I, I felt like they hadn't been there at a, at a time when I needed them. They weren't equipped to help me. And I felt like this political thing that happened really just shook my faith deeply. And for, for a number of years, actually, uh, just kind of had some negative feelings about the church until... Um, until I finally just kind of worked through it with God and realized that my issues weren't with them, it was with Him and with myself. Uh, the, the reason I'm bringing this up is because uh, our relationship uh, with our church is, is kind of nuanced, right? It's not simple. If Facebook had a relationship status with my church box, right, we would all check it's complicated. And uh, that's how it is. And, and uh, today we're, we're in a series, uh, we're continuing our series that's called That You May Know. It's a look at the first letter of John, which was written by uh, Jesus' best friend. And he tells us that he wrote this book so that we could know that we have eternal life. And I think in the passage before us this morning, we're going to see that there's a connection between our relationship with, with God's church and God's people and our sense of our assurance of salvation. So let's read it together. Uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 John 3, uh, we'll begin in verse 11. It says this, uh, 
For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, and everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That is the word of the Lord. So, so here's the short version of, of what John is saying here. If we want to know that we have eternal life, one of the factors to consider is how we relate to God's church and his people. Do we hate them or do we love them? And now we'll do the long version. We'll take a, uh, let's dig a little bit deeper and take a closer look at what John is saying here. Uh, before we can talk about love, John really uh, first wants us to look at hate. And, and so we're seeing the, the hatred of Cain, right? He, uh, he takes us all the way back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis in chapter 4 right, to the story of Cain. Cain was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. He was the first man born after the fall. And he had a younger brother named Abel. And and we're told that on one day they both decided to make a sacrifice before the Lord. See, they were raised by believers, and they were doing kind of church together. They They were doing something religious together. And it says that God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but God did not find Cain's sacrifice to be acceptable. Now, Hebrews 11 tells us that Abel's sacrifice was made in faith and that it was commended to him as righteousness, right? The same way that Abraham's faith was was counted as righteousness, the same way that our faith is considered righteousness in Christ Jesus. See, Abel was a believer. He was a child of God. But Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable, and and we don't know exactly why it was unacceptable or what was wrong with it, but John tells us here that he was of the evil one. And when God kind of talked to Cain about it afterwards, uh, he was telling him, like, this is a sin issue. You need to deal with your sin. Proverbs 21, 27 uh, gives us a little bit of insight. It says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable, and, and then he was angry afterwards. And instead of listening to God and, and dealing with that sin... He instead allowed his anger to fester, and it turned into hatred 
for his brother. And then he called him out into a field and he brutally murdered him. You know, it didn't take long in the course of human history for the ultimate evil to show itself. And John tells us why in in our passage today. He tells us why it happened. He says, because Abel's deeds were righteous and his own were evil. See, Cain and Abel, they had the same earthly father, a believer, Adam, and yet they had very different spiritual fathers. Abel's spiritual father was God, and Cain's spiritual father was the devil. Now, in his gospel account, John tells us of a time when Jesus talked about spiritual fatherhood. Jesus was talking to some Jews, and they were, they were kind of caught up in this idea that they were Abraham's children. They had this notion in their mind that because they were the chosen people, because they were of a particular race, because they were a part of the nation of Israel, they felt that that was evidence that their spiritual father was God. But Jesus kind of sets them straight. And in John 8, starting in verse 42, this is what Jesus says to them. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God, and the reason why you do not hear them is because you are not of God. This is why John tells us here, do not be surprised that the world hates the church. See, the world can't understand the righteousness of those who follow Jesus. And they're not really impressed by righteousness. In fact, they hate it because they follow the desires of their father. Jesus warns us again in John 15, uh, 18 and 19. He says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, because their father, their spiritual father is the devil, the father of lies, they cannot bear to see the church in light of Jesus' word, which is the truth. Is it any wonder that we're portrayed as uh, hateful, bigoted, arrogant hypocrites in the media? This is why some of us have such tense holiday meals 
right, with our not yet believing relatives. And Jesus warned us that our family and our coworkers and our schoolmates and the world at large is not going to love us. You know, I, I used to work in a small office and, and all of us would uh, often get together and we'd go out to lunch uh, together. But occasionally, they all wanted to go to Hooters. And I, because I believe Hooters exploits women and I, I don't feel that my spiritual father would be honored by me patronizing such a place, I would, I would always decline to go. And my coworkers, they, they didn't understand that. They, they, some of them thought I was judging them in my own choices. Some of them thought, well, maybe, maybe my wife is too strict with me. But they, they didn't understand that I just thought it was wrong. That I just thought it was morally wrong. But really, why would they? Because if their spiritual father is not God, if their spiritual father is telling them lies, that this kind of thing is all in good fun, nobody's really getting hurt, that somehow the exploitation of women somehow empowers them, if these are the things they're, they're being told, why would they understand my position in that matter? We're in a post Christian culture these days. You know, we, our message, our message is that there is, there is only one true living God. And our message is that the Bible is the only reliable source of truth. And that message is offensive to those who teach tolerance and acceptance and moral relativity. See, our desire is for people to find the same freedom and satisfaction that we have found in following Jesus Christ in, in a good Christian life. But to those who are children of the devil, our ideas, they look like bigotry and hate. John is saying that, that if we don't hate God's church and his people, he's saying, like, that's a pretty good sign that we're not children of the devil. Because see, it matters who our spiritual father is. It, because our alignment with our spiritual father shapes how we see the whole world. Are we, are we looking at things through this filter of lies? Or are we looking at things through the clear lenses of spiritual truth? Now, this doesn't mean uh, by the way, that all of the world's criticism about the church is unfounded. We do have our flaws, and, and we do need to learn how to listen better to criticism from voices both within and without the church. That's the only way that we will ever improve. And if you, if you think about it, it's always been this way. Our, the New Testament is basically a whole bunch of uh, letters uh, from the apostles, like criticizing churches and saying, look, you're, you know, you're getting this wrong. You need to make an adjustment. And we need to continue that practice today. And yet, we also must remember that we are ultimately accountable to our spiritual father and that any reforms we might undertake, they must be in alignment with his revealed word. So where is your heart today? Do you find yourself being critical of God's church? 
Maybe you're critical of New City Church. Or, or maybe there's a particular uh, Christian brother or sister with whom you have some kind of an issue. If that's you, I, I want you to know that simply having an issue or being critical, that does not mean that, that uh, your spiritual father is the devil. It, it does not necessarily mean that you are not of God, like, like Jesus said, but, but hate for a fellow believer that's, that's not acceptable. And resentment, that resentment, if it's left unresolved, if it's left untended to, it has a tendency to turn into hatred. So what can we do about it? Well, well uh, first, whenever we're dealing with criticism of someone else, the first thing we have to do is remove the plank from our own eye, as Jesus said, before we try to remove the speck from someone else's eyes. We need to look at ourselves first and, and examine ourselves and discover what is our part in the matter and deal with that first. And then we can pray and we can ask God to give us a heart for his church and for his people. And then once we're kind of good with God, right, once we kind of know where we're coming from and what the reality is, if, if that issue hasn't just resolved itself in, in the middle of all of that, then we're given some pretty clear guidance. And this is my challenge to you if you find yourself in that place. Uh, read Matthew 18, 15 through 18. Like write, write that down and, and read it later this week. Pray about it. Seek the guidance of somebody that you trust who can hold you accountable to. Determine what the next step is, what the next right thing to do is, what the next best step forward in love is, and then take that step. Some of us, I, I suspect, are on the other side of, of the matter. Like maybe we're frustrated with the animosity and the unfairness with which the church is treated today. Or maybe you know someone, a specific person, who is um, hating you simply because you're a believer. Maybe it's a relative or a coworker or a friend or a neighbor. It's somebody who, who doesn't understand who you are, and it's painful. My challenge for you this week is to reflect on the words of Jesus in John 15, 18 through 16, 4. I said, write that down right now, and this week, make it your devotional passage. Spend some time there. In it, you'll see that Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will be our helper during these kinds of times. And, and I believe that the Holy Spirit will help us to accept the things that we cannot change. And he'll help us not get off mission by trying to preserve those things that cannot be preserved. I think that John showed us the hate of Cain to to remind us that if we're a hater, we're really a murderer at heart. And, and if that's us, we would, we would know that we don't have eternal life within us. But then he turns to the opposite. The opposite of hate is the love of Christ. Now, I, I read an article recently about an atheist church. You heard that right, a church church. For atheists, it's somewhere, of course, out west. 
And there's a, there's a group of atheists who they've started a regular church service every week and they sing songs and they fellowship together and they bring in like motivational speakers, like TED Talk kind of people. Of course, none of the songs are focused on worshiping God and the fellowship is, is not at all connected to the mission of the gospel and the speeches are not in any way exhortations of biblical truth. It's kind of the, the irony of the whole thing is that they, they obviously have looked at the church and said, wow, we see the value in, in the community that is formed as a church and yet they completely missed everything that makes going to church a powerful life-transforming part of the Christian life. Or maybe they're just mocking us. I, it's kind of hard to tell the difference. But the, the, the point I'm making is that it's the love of Christ that makes the church God's church. And it's the thing that makes a Christian spiritually alive. Without it, we're just a bunch of haters coming together and playing at church. See, John equates our love for the brothers and sisters of the church with eternal life. In verse 14, this is what he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. He says we know the Greek word for this means we know it, like it's just a fact, it's known. And it says that we have passed from death, death, for you Avengers fans, that's Thanatos. We have passed from death into life. John says that we can know this. Before we believe in Jesus, we're spiritually dead, right? Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn with our behavior. But it goes on to say that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've passed from spiritual death into eternal life, but this is, this is an invisible thing, right? This isn't like an out-of-body experience where, where it's something that we ha can kind of witness. Like, how can we know that this has in fact happened. Well, John says that one of the evidences of eternal life is that we love the brothers and the sisters of the church. See, love is a big deal in the life of a Christian. It, it's impossible to separate it from any aspect of our faith, and, and it's preeminent over all the other parts of our faith. Galatians 5.22 calls it the first fruit of the Spirit. Or it doesn't call it that, but it lists it as the first fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5.6, uh, it says uh, that it's a sign of the reality of faith. 
In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith working through love. When the virtues are listed in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, we see that it's the greatest of these. It says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Think about that for a minute. Love is greater than faith. And of course, love is the whole of the law, right? The, the greatest commandment is to uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. So see, love is important. And that means that Christians should demonstrate love, a kind of general love for all people. But what we have to note in today's passage is that John is placing a particular emphasis on love for those in the church. And he says that that is evidence of our salvation. You may have heard it said before that that love is a choice, right? Love is not a noun, it's a verb. It's something that we do. It's something that we choose to do. And just like any other kind of love, love for God's church and God's people takes work. It must be cultivated. Patrick read this earlier, but he, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Man, it seems like the day is drawing near lately, right? This is why this pandemic lockdown has been such a challenge to us as Christians because of the love that we have for one another, it's difficult for us to give up meeting together. And my challenge to you this morning is that we would make a renewed commitment to cultivating our hunger for Christian fellowship as it becomes safer for us to meet together again. We should delight in, in every opportunity to worship and pray together and to come together to discuss spiritual truth and to demonstrate our love for one another in acts of unselfish caring. But before we can truly examine ourselves to, to, to see if we love God's church and his people, we, we really need to know, like, what does that love actually look like? And, and thankfully, we have the example of Christ. See, Cain, Cain is the ultimate example of hate. To, to deprive someone of their most precious possession, their very life, that is the greatest sin that we could commit against anyone. Jesus, on the other hand, is the ultimate example of love. Because to give away our very life for someone else, that is the ultimate expression of love that we can show to someone. If we cultivate hate, it will inevitably lead us to murder. And if we cultivate love, it will inevitably lead us to self-sacrifice. 
Jesus' life was characterized by self-sacrifice. Consider the words of Philippians 2, 6 through 8, which say that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Jesus is the God of the universe. He was there at creation. And yet he laid down his life so that he could be in relationship with us, so that he could come as a man and and live a perfect, sinless life on our behalf. And then he died a horrible, brutal death to pay the penalty for our sin. And and during all of that, Jesus was just all about serving others. He was comforting people and meeting with people and having meals with people and teaching people and healing people and bringing people back from the dead. And he even washed the, the feet of his own disciples. He lived a life of self sacrifice, and that must be our life as well. John says this in verse 16, he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and the sisters of the church. And he said this before. We saw it in in chapter 2, verse 6. It says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And of course, John is just echoing the words of his best friend. Jesus himself said in John 15, starting in verse 12, he said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, in the end, John John makes this kind of very practical for us. I I don't want you to miss this thing. In verse 16, this is what he says. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Brothers, plural, right? Right? But then in verse 17, he's, he narrows it down. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and he sees his brother in need, his brother, singular. I don't think this is just him getting his tenses wrong. I, I think this is a very deliberate thing. There's a theologian um, with the unfortunate name of Greville P. Lewis. And, and he says this, It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity 
with a capital H, than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. See, loving your church and supporting it, uh, it's a good thing. It is, but it's, that's not enough. That's not the Christian life. We're, we're expected to be connected with one another in a genuine and a personal way. And we're called to emulate Christ's life of self-sacrifice within the body of Christ. John asks us a, a question He says, how can we have God's love abiding within us if we have closed our heart to those who are in need? And John emphasizes kind of uh, three factors of laying down our lives. The first is this idea of the world's goods. It's kind of a funny phrase. Uh, We don't ever use that phrase. Um, The word world means the world, and the word goods is an interesting word. It's bios. It literally means life. It's a strange little phrase. I I think the best way to understand it is when you say you have the world's goods, what you're saying is that you are able to earn a living. You, You have an income coming in that is supporting you. The second thing that John emphasizes is that we need to see the need of the brothers. To, to see the need of, the, of our brothers and sisters, it requires more than just a passing glance. It means taking the time to be in relationship with them, to know them well enough that we can appreciate and understand the nature of their situation. And finally, John puts an emphasis on God's love. He says that God's love abides in those who have open hearts towards those in need. Well, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by God's love? I think he sums it up in in chapter four. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I'll let Ryan deal with propitiation when, he, when we get to chapter four. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. No one has ever seen God. See, God demonstrates his love to us through his people. That is how we see God working in our lives, is through the people. And also, we see that God loved us, not because we deserved it, but because, uh, or not because we loved him first, but simply because he loved us. And he did it extravagantly, sending his very son to die for our sins so that he could be in relationship with us. And, and John says if he, if he so loved us, so extravagantly, so unconditionally, that's how our love should be for one another. 
John mentioned the world's goods. And, and you know, like I said, it's a little bit of a play on words because he chose this word that means life. Because John is, is calling on us here to lay down our lives. Some of us will be called maybe to literally do that. Some, some people, first responders and soldiers, I mean, even healthcare workers right now are, are, are putting their very lives in danger so that they can serve others. And, and for some of us, maybe that is how we will lay down our lives. But for most of us, we're called to this kind of ordinary sense of self-sacrifice, to lay down the world's goods, to lay down our everyday rights, to lay down our lives for the sake of those who are in need. It comes down to this. We need to be in relationship with others in the church. And, and so for some of us, what that means is, is uh, we have to let people know that we have needs. I know that's hard. I know that's difficult for many of us, but we need to let people know us well enough to, that they know that we are in need. And for others of us, it means that we need to, we need to be curious enough to discover the needs of others. And if God has provided for us in a way where we could be of some help, then the love of God should motivate us to generosity. And if it doesn't, well, then some, something's wrong. And, and we ought to be concerned about that. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're children of the devil, but, but it's certainly an indicator that we're not abiding in Christ. Remember, Jesus said that no one comes to the Father except by him. This is about spiritual fathership. Con consider Jesus' words in John 15, starting in verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See, our spiritual Father, he's the source of our love through his Son, Jesus, and empowered by his Holy Spirit. We abide in him through the means of grace. If you're wondering, like, how do I do this abiding thing? It's pretty easy. We, we go to the means of grace, and that's his word, the sacraments, and prayer. Most of the time, I would say, when we, when we find ourselves out of alignment with our spiritual father, it's because we are not spending any time abiding with his son, Jesus. So this week, uh, I, I'm asking, will you join me in making a renewed commitment to abiding in him? To, to spend some time every day reading and praying and specifically asking him to give us a renewed love for his church and for his people. Because then we'll know, right? Then we will know that we have eternal life and, and then we can celebrate it together 
as the family of God, his church, brothers and sisters united in his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift that is your church. I thank you for the the brothers and sisters that you have put into my life and the love that you have given me for them. Lord, I know that I'm not always easy to love, and I know that uh, we, uh, in general, we're not easy for you to love. And let you, yet you loved us perfectly, even to the point of laying down your life on a cross so that we could live with you forever in eternity. Lord, help me, help me to have that kind of love for my brothers and sisters in the church. Lord, help me to have that kind of love for the, the church all around the world. For every different kind of church that calls on you and calls you Lord and Savior. Lord, bind us in unity with your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.